2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I know you're not a big fan of air travel, so I've got a a question for you. All right. If you wanted to go to, say, somewhere on the other side of the world, you wanted to go to China or go to somewhere in Europe or something – and you, you still hate air travel as much as you did. And I offered you the chance to go there instantly via a real-life teleportation machine that would scan your body and figure out where all the atoms are and then rebuild you in a teleporter pod on the other side of the globe wherever you wanted to go and you could be there instantly. Would you do it? Ooh, this is a fun one, right?
1: Because uh, what, what happens to my, my old body? Is it just destroyed? Is it just incinerated on the
0: spot? well incinerated has such negative vibes i mean it, it's not incinerated it is turned into its <laughs> atomic constituents all right and then
1: uh, i can't just keep both though i can't double sleeve and have uh, have have one of me here in the states and the, and the other me is uh, is in asia somewhere
0: i don't know that seems like it would lead to bad uh, sci-fi action movie scenarios where one of you must eliminate the other on the commands of the moon king
1: hmm. well you know it's uh, it's tempting still just to to cut out all of that air travel because air travel can be taxing. It can be exhausting. Um, and yet at the same time, by virtue of being taxing and exhausting, I'm never quite the same person when I reach the other end of that flight, especially if it's a long flight, right? Because – i'm I may enter into the flight being like a little anxious, but maybe on some level like looking you know looking forward to that you know long period uh, in which I can just listen to music and read, and then on the other side, then i am I'm potentially tired I'm potentially uh, you know blissed out from um, you know Xanax and Steve Roach uh, albums um, you know three <laughs> hours plus uh, but i'm I'm not quite the same person right i'm I've changed a little bit so I might as well be this teleported other self that is uh, that is a diversion from who
0: I am now I don't know when you get to the end of a flight uh, even if it's been unpleasant do you really have the sensation that you have died uh, it, <laughs> it depends <laughs> I guess how
1: much turbulence uh, I have to endure.
0: I mean, that's always the question about the teleporter machine, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the question that everybody had to start wondering about Star Trek. I guess, I guess it, th- there was probably a blissful period early in Star Trek history where nobody wondered if the teleporter machines killed you, <laughs> but pretty soon people had to catch on, right? Yeah, is it just is it just killing you and then making a copy of you somewhere else that will continue with your behaviors, but your life ends when you step in? Yeah, and and
1: it's just everyone's gotten to the point where they're cool with it. They just don't yeah. think about it. They're, they just step into the teleporter and let s- yeah. a sweet annihilation uh, wash over them. I'm just, I'm ready
0: to die and make a copy of me somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't know, it doesn't seem like people would be like that. I mean, most of the time people have the sensation that their experiences are continuous and they want it to continue to be continuous. I guess in Trek, as long as
1: there's not an afterlife, you're good, right? Because <laughs> you'll just never know. It's just blind leap of faith.
0: Right, and of course, I mean, we have, as we've talked about on the show, before we have no idea how the, say, the the baton of consciousness is handed off from past self to present self to future self and from one moment to the next. I mean, maybe maybe it's the case that every time you go under general anesthesia, you die and then a different person wakes up with all of your thoughts and memories. Maybe you are the copy that woke up after the last time you went under anesthesia. Maybe that happens every time you fall asleep. You'd really have no way to know. Yeah, th- that is a, certainly a point
1: when the, the curtain drops. And who, who knows exactly what's going on with the set, right? Or at least what's going on with the set is is, is very much uh, an area of interest to uh, to scientists who study consciousness. Uh, now, here's another question for you, Joe. What if you were able to get a hold of of a, of a time machine? I'm not talking some sort of a realistic. Uh, you know, a uh, time machine like we've talked about discussing, uh, you, know, you know, black holes and whatnot. I'm talking a, a causality wrecking Hollywood time machine. Uh, like a travel a, to the past machine? Yes, oh, like no. a time cop travel to the past machine.
0: That is rough.
1: So if, if I were to go back in time and meet a younger me. Is that younger me really me? Is this two me's? Because the younger me is not physically identical to me. Its mind and personality isn't identical to me. So if if Jean-Claude Van Damme were to spin kick me into my past self, would I even melt
0: into a screaming pile of jelly? Well, no, I don't think so because I don't think travel into the past is possible. But even if it were possible, I assume that if you went into the past, you would just be like another person, like an identical twin. And identical twins don't melt each other into jelly when they collide. At least, at least as far as I know, I don't. No, I've never have, seen it happen.
1: <laughs> now we have a lot of wonderful uh, science fiction to utilize when we we tackle these these questions of identity and self and change. Uh, but they haven't always been around. In the old days. Uh, you had to uh, depend on uh, let's say more traditional stories uh, and, and myths for your uh, your thought experiments. And in fact, one of the oldest uh, thought experiments is that, we ha- that we have is, uh, is very
0: much in this vein, the ship of Theseus. The ship of Theseus, right. So this is one of the most classic paradoxes in the history of philosophy. And it also goes to a thing that I think for some reason it seems the Greeks were particularly interested in, which was the nature and identity of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of course, the nature and identity of things is always a topic for philosophers to investigate. But the ancient Greek philosophers seemed really concerned with what made a thing itself. What were the properties or the essences of a thing that gave it its identity? How did you know that you were really Robert? How did you, Robert, know that you earned – that you had the merit of being called Robert? Why Why wasn't something else, Robert? And so they had these ideas of essences and forms and all this stuff that's deeply concerned with what makes something itself and when you can call it what it is. You know, this brings up an interesting side question here. Do you think of yourself as Joe? That's a good question, and there are actually a couple of ways to answer it. I mean, I would say in uh, when I step back and think of myself, I do. I guess I think of myself as Joe, as a self. You know, there's some – there's some soul Joe out there that is the core of who I think I am and my main qualities and all that. And, and of course, you're not always the best judge of yourself, so other mm-hmm. people could probably describe that person better than I could. But there's, there's another sense of how you think of yourself in which I don't think I think of myself as Joe. Moment to moment, I think of myself as the most recent contents of my consciousness – yeah. So I'm just I. It, moment to moment, I'm not Joe. Moment to moment, I am whatever I'm thinking about.
1: Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. Well, when I try and answer the question myself, I I think well, I'm not. I don't really think of myself as Robert. I think of myself kind of as the me. You know, I'm mm-hmm. just I'm just this I, uh, in a in a given scenario. Unless I am like you're you're saying, essentially becoming the thoughts that I am having, and then I'm even further away from this when I. When I'm forced to think of myself as Robert, it is because uh, the external world is uh, is making me do it because that is what they call me and that is what I continue to be called because
0: I just – I guess don't feel passionately enough about it to change it. <laughs> well, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about the idea of identity in the ship of Theseus is that the external world is increasingly going to be forcing us to think about questions like this mm-hmm. because of new technological capabilities that are coming online. Uh, so this is yet another conversation that we're having sort of in the wake of uh, of a conversation you saw in New York this year at the World Science Festival. But th- this is a great topic that's worth exploring from the bottom up. So I say we go all the way back to Theseus and then Work our way to the technological and scientific questions. All right. Well, let's start with
1: Theseus. Then, um, who, who
0: was he? Give me Theseus.
1: He's essentially the Flash Gordon of uh, Greek mythology. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. always the, the most important but the least interesting character in a given story. that's, oh, that's, that's, that's great. my initial uh, response, anyway. But he also
0: went into the maze and fought the Minotaur, right?
1: Yeah. N- not only fought the Minotaur, but but what is he is the slayer of the Minotaur solver of the, uh, the 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 Minoan maze
0: as well. Solver. That's the corporate speak idea, right? He, yeah. He didn't slay the Minotaur. He solved that problem. Right. He was able to execute on uh, on his strategy. Yes, but then he
1: also escaped from the maze, right, by by virtue of string, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's a good part. Because it's one thing to, to kill the Minotaur. I mean, that's pretty impressive in and of itself, but you still have to find your way out of the Minoan maze.
0: How many minimally counterintuitive elements does the story of Theseus and the Minotaur have? Well, we have the min- for starters, is that it? Is that the only part? Well, the, the maze, I suppose. I suppose there could be a real maze, or is there something magic about the maze?
1: Well, that's kind of the, if I'm remembering correctly from a past episode on, on mazes and labyrinths. Um, one of the things about the maze is that depends on depends on which telling you're looking at. And if you go back far enough, it it's less of a maze it it could be something else something less extravagant but as the tradition builds the maze becomes this this fabulous uh fa- fabulous dungeons and dragons uh dungeon uh, scenario you know mm-hmm. uh, which i love but um but i guess that's always something to keep in mind with uh with these tales is it's not it fits in with what we're talking about here today it, a mythological story is not this one thing that is then passed on it is a thing that is built upon a thing that changes over time
0: ah well well that brings us to the central concept right the ship of theseus so to quote from plutarch in his his lives he wrote you know about the lives of illustrious men and so plutarch wrote quote The ship wherein Theseus and the youth of Athens returned had 30 oars and was preserved by the Athenians down even to the time of Demetrius Philirius, for they took away the old planks as they decayed putting in new and stronger timber in their place, insomuch that this ship became a standing example among the philosophers for the logical questions of things that grow, one side holding that the ship remained the same and the other contending that it was not the same. So there's your classic dilemma on the ship of Theseus. They have a ship— The ship, of course, like all ships, rots and falls away over time, so you've got to replace parts of it. Now, if you maintain this ship for so long that you've eventually replaced every original board in the ship and no original parts remain, is it the same ship? Is it still the ship of Theseus or has it become something else?
1: Yeah, the, the hokey version of this is uh, or the hokey variant is uh, the is grandfather's axe, mm-hmm. which I imagine a number of, uh, of our listeners have heard as well. Why is this hokey? Ah, uh, it's just it's like it only has two parts to it. Like there's the, so the grandfather's axe is the idea. Hey, here's grandfather's axe, but uh, the, the the handle rotted away and we had to replace that, and then also the blade broke, so we had to replace that. Both parts of this two part tool have been replaced. How can it possibly be grandfather's axe?
0: Well, I actually don't think that's a hokey example because I think that kind of thing really comes through when when you think about, say, uh, artifacts in a museum.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of historical artifacts in a museum are not going to be exactly the same material constituents as when the artifact was first forged uh, or especially a lot of like uh, – Things that are not so much a uh, an artifact you can pick up in your hand, but like buildings and installations. A lot of mm-hmm. these things have been restored long ago in history. So you might see a thing in a museum that at some point somebody replaced parts of long ago. So are you seeing the real original thing?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, this makes me think of the Parthenon, uh, which of course is, is in ruins and has been uh, – in ruins for a little while now. Should we but, rebuild it? Exactly. But if you rebuild it, then yes, you make it look like the thing that once was.
0: But then, or like you think the thing that once yeah, was. You yeah, think the, think the Your thing once was.
1: And then you have to choose which era you want to recreate. You know, there's certain eras that they're certainly not talking about recreating. Uh, but uh, but then yeah, once you've restored it, then you also lose the the iconic ruins that exist today that that in, that in a way are a more. I guess you could say honest um, reminder of what was there before.
0: Well, in a way, also the ruins are part of what the Parthenon is. Yeah, I mean the Parthenon is a thing that exists over time, and if you take away the ruins, you have, in a way, destroyed the Parthenon. Even if you take them away to rebuild it, uh, think of that. Makes me think of the
1: Colossi of Memnon uh, that we discussed. Which to remind everybody, these were these were. A pair of uh, of ancient uh, colossi. One of them uh, fell over in ancient times, but then was also restored poorly in ancient times. Uh, so what do you do? Do you, get up, you decide one day that you're just going to restore them both to how they uh, may have once looked? Uh, do you restore them both to the ruins? I mean, they're, these are all a part of the essentially the life cycle of these statues over time.
0: Yeah, so this question is actually meaningful. If you want people to be able to experience history What is the thing that gives them the most authentic experience of history? Is it the decayed version as it stands or is it a restored version? And the same thing is true of the ship. If you want people to be able to see the ship of Theseus because it has this great historical significance, do you replace the rotting parts or do you just let it rot? And if you just let it rot, does it eventually disappear? Of course it does. I think this is one of the reasons I I like the ship of
1: Theseus. Uh, more than I, uh, you know, care for a grandfather's axe. Okay, <laughs> because it's more gradual. There's so many more parts involved. There's more of a question of at what point, uh, you know, th- is it more new than old? At which point in this gradual process does it lo- does it lose its identity?
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. It sort of incorporates the paradox of the heap into the uh, the, the question of whether a thing that is replaced in the same way is the original thing. Uh, because you're 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 asking, is there a transition point? At what point is you know if fifty percent of the mass of the ship has been replaced? Now is it no longer the ship of Theseus? Like it's a dollar bill, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you have more than half of it to have it be worth a dollar?
1: Yeah, like this this comes up. Uh, some more scenario comes up when we start thinking about species and uh, speciation. At what point does
0: this cease to be? one species and truly become a different species. Well this just highlights the the fact that species is sort of an artificial distinction. I mm-hmm. mean it it has some utility for biologists but it's a species not a thing you find in nature. It's just sort of a useful concept. A useful concept
1: to describe something that is an ongoing process. Yeah. uh, Which, you know, ultimately one of the questions we're asking here today is to what extent can the same be said about identity?
0: Now, of course, lots of philosophers have explored the idea of the ship of Theseus. You know, philosophers get real worked up about whether something is what it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, Plato's Cratylus Dialogue – in some ways, deals with this concept. Um, and Thomas Hobbes dealt with it too, right? That's right.
1: English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who lived 1588 through 1679, uh, he added another, and, and in my opinion, very fun level of complexity to this thought experiment. He said, what if you not only gradually replaced all of the parts of the ship of Theseus, but what if you also took all of those old parts and used them to assemble an identical boat?
0: Hmm. So you took the rotting timber... You replace that with good wood, and then you took the rotting timber and made a new boat out of it. Right. And at this point, which is the
1: real ship now? One is remodeled, the other is reassembled. They're both the same ship, and yet clearly they are not the same ship. That is a good variation. I've also heard a variation of this where you, like, gradually steal some sort of masterpiece, a piece at a time, and replace it. So if you were to st- want to uh, steal, say, the ship of Theseus okay. from a museum right, and you stole it piece by piece, you know, swapping out for a counterfeit piece, uh-huh. then do you ultimately – what do you have? Did you actually steal the whole ship or and replace it with a counterfeit? Or is that still the ship in there?
0: I just got an awesome idea for a, yet another remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. <laughs> they they steal the painting one centimeter at a time with razor blades.
1: Yeah. Now, and you know, another detail that's often thrown in is: Did Theseus ever actually stand foot on this ship? Oh uh, yeah. That, that ends up playing into the identity of it. But back to Thomas Hobbes. So yeah, he's
0: he's saying, yeah, you know, what if you took the old pieces and you just reconstructed the ship? But if you 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 could take that principle and extend it to other scenarios, less less contrived ones.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he ends up pondering this a bit more too. He says, "Wouldn't this also mean that nothing can be the same? A man standing would not be the same as he was when he was sitting. Water in a vessel would be another example of this. It's in the vessel, and then you pour it out. Is yeah. It, I mean, clearly, it's the same water, or is it the same water based on on this uh, question?" He says, uh, quote, wherefore, the beginnings of individualization is not always to be taken either from matter alone or from form alone. And all this gets down to uh, this idea of uh, identity over time as opposed to identity in a single moment, you know, whatever a single moment is. Uh, And there's a lot of philosophical thought on this topic, more more than we can possibly summarize in this
0: episode. Well, yeah, uh, but I do think it's worth exploring the idea of thinking about um – maybe there maybe what these paradoxes are doing, like the ship of Theseus and grandfather's axe and mm-hmm. and the water in a vessel, is highlighting some fundamental flaw in our metaphysics. It's showing you, hey, you're generating paradoxes because there's something wrong with the way you categorize things in the world. It's the same way you might know there's something wrong with your physics theory if it's requiring you to divide by zero or something. (laughs) You know, (laughs) something went wrong somewhere along here. Well, it really feels more and more
1: like it's a situation where uh, our our metaphysics is largely about figuring out real-time events. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, the, the soldier is running at me. Uh, what should I do to avoid him? Uh, but then we, ins- we end up extrapolating that via mental time travel and memory. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're taking it into the future. We're taking it into the past. And we're considering me's and he's in situations that are not identical to the present.
0: That's a great point. But more than that, what would it mean for a thing to be identical to the present? I mean, is there such a thing as an identical uh, moment to the present or the identity of a thing even? So I want to talk about a a cool article I saw. This was published in Aeon magazine in November 2017 by Kelso Veira. And it's called, Which is More Fundamental, Processes or Things? And it's just a, a quick Nice little explainer on the difference between what's known as substance metaphysics and process metaphysics. Now, metaphysics, of course, is just our attempt to understand the most basic level of reality or existence. It's the set of principles that's underneath physics. So, physics, for example, might be able to tell you that a thing has a certain mass and a certain velocity and so forth. Metaphysics might ask, what does it mean for a thing to exist? Or what does it mean to have a property like mass or velocity? What are properties? And uh, so, to quote from Veira's article, "Western metaphysics tends to rely on the paradigm of substances. We often see the world as a world of things, composed of atomic molecules, natural kinds, galaxies. Objects are the paradigmatic mode of existence. The basic building blocks of the universe. What exists exists as an object. That is to say." Things are of a certain kind. They have some specific qualities and well-defined spatial and temporal limits. And so you might use the example of like a a cat, your cat, Robert. Mm-hmm. Now, your cat has existed for a certain amount of time. It has certain features that you can list that describe it physically, the color of its fur, the color of its eyes. Uh, I don't know how much it likes to jump up on the counter, how much it obeys you when you tell it to do something. I don't know how much cats ever do that. That's probably not part of cat identity. <laughs> yeah, she's not much for uh, obeying. Uh, but Veira argues that perhaps substance metaphysics is just not the best way of thinking about the world. And it actually leads to confusion and paradox. And so he gives this example of the question of the, you know, you know the classic, do you see this glass of water as half empty or half full? But about that glass of water, Veira writes, quote, But what if the isolated frame, a glass of water, fails to give the relevant information? anyone would prefer an emptier glass that is getting full to a fuller one getting empty. Any analysis lacking information about change misses the point, which is just what substance metaphysics is missing. So he articulates the view of process philosophers, people who believe that the fundamental constituents of reality are not things, but processes. It's not that a thing exists, it's that a process is in a particular state at a particular time. As As the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead put it, uh, we should think of the world as a collection of occurrences instead of things. And this resonates with me a lot. I I actually think about this view fairly often, especially when I'm reading about fundamental physics. But speaking of the Greeks, I mean, this also has a – there's a long tradition of this kind of thought. If you go back to Heraclitus who propounded the principle of Pantarei, everything flows. Existence in a way is like a river and you can't step into the same river twice for multiple reasons. Not just because the water of the river has flown past and and changed uh, but because you've changed when you step into the river again. And I think the important thing about this, thing about process metaphysics, is that this doesn't have to change anything about our understanding of the physical laws of nature. And as far, as far as I can tell, it's totally compatible with them, and some would actually say more compatible with them. It's also certainly more in keeping with our understanding of biology, which tells us that there are not actually fixed kinds of animals or plants or bacteria, but there's instead this process of change over time. And that the change produces frequencies of different ele- as it cycles through ever-changing states. Yeah,
1: and then, of course, you also think about the the various chemical reactions that are, are necessary, the various, uh, um, you know, all, all the things that, that, that affect our mind state at any given, any given point of the day. You know, when we try and decide who we are, we're essentially trying to, like, pick out what is the ideal version of me that may manifest at any given point in right. the... You know, the the currently or in the near future or the near past. Is it the you know, is it the I haven't finished my second drink or I'm on my second cup of coffee? <laughs> yeah. You know, me? That that's that's the only
0: version that I'm gonna account I'm gonna count. What's the platonic form of Robert? Yeah. You're trying to seek out some ideal form of yourself that you've created as an abstraction that doesn't actually match who you are or what you're doing at any given moment in time. In fact, Try to think of an object that you can identify, that has an identity, that does not fundamentally change its form or nature over time. A seed turns into a sapling and then into a tree and then it dies and then it rots and goes into the ground. And this is the case of every biological thing you can think of. But then, of course – on a longer time scale other things are like that stars asteroids planets uh black holes you know things things change over time even even black holes evaporate over time you've got hawking radiation
1: well just, i think too about the the very stones that we build our monuments and our gravestones out of we build things out of stone because it makes them more permanent you know uh, that, uh, that that it will live on after we're gone and that's true yeah. uh, these things tend to to exist on a scale that goes beyond uh, the, the limits of, uh, of our biology, of, of pure mortal existence. And yet at the same time, we change the stone to make it into the graves, gravestone. And any walk through the cemetery will remind you that, uh, that these things too fade uh, and, uh, and, and are eroded or are shattered when, uh, when tree limbs fall upon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, everything spoiler, everything
0: changes. It's great to walk backwards through time in a cemetery, to start with the the fresher graves that have the pristine stones and then walk back through time to the older and older graves, which often they they tend to just disappear into the ground. They turn into nubs. You can't read what's on them anymore. There there, will maybe be just a kind of rock marker and that's it. Yeah. And then
1: the sun starts going down and the ghouls come. And then you realize you've really been wandering in the graveyard too long.
0: And you have changed into a delicious meal. (laughs) Uh, no, I guess the the ghouls prefer grave flesh, don't they? Do they eat live people?
1: I, you know, it depends on the interpretation. But um, the the stories I like, I think the ghouls will go for a live meal if they can get it. You know, especially yeah. if it's somebody that has become lost in the cemetery and uh, and uh, the sun is setting.
0: It's like the kid who prefers chicken McNuggets, but will if they're forced to eat a delicious, fresh cooked meal out of produce <laughs> and all that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, so I was trying to think of an example of uh, – an a counterexample, right? Is there something that doesn't change over time? And I was like, well, you know, you've got maybe fundamental elementary particles. They don't really – they don't have characteristics. They're all identical. They're interchangeable. Maybe they don't change over time. But thinking back to the entire history of the universe, that's not actually true. Like during the, the Planck epoch at the beginning of uh, time as far as we know in the local universe, quarks and electrons hadn't been formed yet. This was a time of – Hot condensed energy when we did not have quarks, and then later you get quark gluon plasma and all that. But so, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can actually think of a thing that is an object that has never changed and will never change.
1: Even in mythology and religion, you're often hard pressed to find that one constant that doesn't change. I think probably, I guess if you if you look at uh, you know monotheistic uh, Judeo Christian uh, uh, and Islamic interpretations of God. Then you have something that is supposedly unchanging uh, over time, from the very beginning to the very end. Um, but in uh, it seems like most other religions and cosmologies, uh, you know, gods begat begot gods, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and they all have these
0: uh, essentially life uh, cycles that they're going through. Well, I would say even the the fact that monotheistic gods enter into narratives makes them not exactly unchanging you can't tell a narrative about something that doesn't change if it enters into a new covenant with
1: with humanity then that's hopefully a change. Hopefully there was some change in,
0: uh, in attitude there that we can uh, view as positive. I'm sure there are a million ways of splitting that theological hair. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, to come back to the idea of uh, process philosophy, process metaphysics, thinking of things not as objects, this is not a world of things, but a world of processes going through changes. How, how should this change the way we think about the shape of Theseus? Uh, so uh, Vieira writes, to explain why things change without losing their identity, substance philosophers need to posit Some underlying core, an essence that remains the same throughout change, it is not easy to pin down what this core might be, as the paradox of Theseus' ship illustrates. And then he explains the ship as we already have, but he writes. Is this the same ship even though materially it is completely different? For substance philosophers, this is something of a paradox. For process philosophers, this is a necessary part of identity. Of course it is the same ship. Identity ceases to be a static equivalence of a thing with itself. After all, without the repairs, the ship would have lost its functionality. It would have become a ruin or yeah. a, a shipwreck. Well, it just wouldn't be a ship anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh so yeah, ships change, parts get replaced, and that's part of the process of the ship. There is no thing ship. Ship is a ship is an ongoing process of change, just like you and me are. And uh, Vieira defends against the idea that processes are just transitions between different fundamental substance realities by pointing out one thing we mentioned a little bit earlier, the, the paradox of the heap. Uh, if you've never read about this before, the paradox of the heap basically says, OK, you got a heap of sand. Mm-hmm. Now, you remove one grain of sand at a time. And every time you remove a grain of sand, you ask, is it still a heap of sand? And at some point, you will only have one grain of sand left. That's obviously not a heap. But you can't point to a moment where suddenly the heap was not a heap anymore. The same thing happens with biological entities in evolution. One of the great images that Richard Dawkins has used in explaining the history of an organism is try to imagine – Your ancestors going all the way back down the generations where you hold hands with your mother and then your mother holds hands with her mother and it goes back like that forever. At what point will you find the moment where a mother gave birth to a, a daughter of a different species than her? it'll never happen every at every point the mother was giving birth to something that was pretty much the same animal she was but these changes accumulate over time and you can't if you zoom in you'll never see the change i mean at some point the the thumb is no longer opposable i guess that that might play a role well but it's not going to be a transition from opposable to not opposable it'll mm-hmm. be a it'll, it'll be a gradual transition That's something that maybe is not even noticeably less opposable, but is just slightly less. But eventually it just becomes a fist bump. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Can't hold hands anymore. You're just fist bumping mom all the way back to the pluritozoa. But that can't be right, right? Because the fist bump is a thing you arrive at, not a thing you came from. (laughs) Fist bump is the future.
1: Well, but who's to say? Who's to say that the fist bump wasn't the (laughs) predominant mode of greeting in, uh, you know, among archaic humans? They might have even done the explosion. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Or the snail. That's what all those hands
0: on the cave walls are, the (laughs) explosion. Yes.
1: (laughs) All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will summon the Swamp Man. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com.
0: All right, we're back. So we've been talking about the ship of Theseus, the question of what determines the identity of a thing. If you take a ship and you replace all of its parts over many years, is it still the same ship if no original part of that ship remains? And one of the ways that this becomes actually relevant to the real world is when we start thinking about minds, right? And because we have this thing we call experience, the experience of experience – And you have the sensation that your experience is continuous, or at least I have that sensation. I assume everybody else does. Everybody else acts like they do. And like they they want their experience to be a unified part of this continuous ongoing thing that is identifiable as itself. You don't want to suddenly be somebody else who is no longer you. Though certainly people do have – and this becomes a question, like to what extent do they
1: legitimately – have this moment of just profound change in their life, Mm -hmm. you know, a a moment of revelation or salvation, you know, a road to Damascus kind of thing. To what extent is it a true change or is it a, or are we like forcing the change upon ourselves? We're saying that we changed, uh, but on a, on some other level, we're still thinking of ourselves as a continuous movement.
0: Well, e- even then, people tend to put the value of their change in terms of themselves relative to who they used to be. That's true. Uh, yeah. So, if you have had this road to Damascus moment, where you know I'm a different person now, and I'm so glad I am, you tend to think of that as being valuable relative to whatever kind of creep you were before.
1: Right. I mean, any if if you have a good redemption story, you've got to get into
0: what <laughs> what came first. Yeah. And also, if every personal change or improvement for the better was like the Star Trek teleporter that just kills you and makes a newer, better copy of you, would people really go for it? I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like – you know, occasionally there will be a story where somebody – like generally they've written a book or something. But they've made this phenomenal change. They used to be a terrible person. And now they're a good person and they're out there preaching the word about how everyone should be a good person too. And it (laughs) makes you think at times, well – I was never a terrible person. Uh, how come? <laughs> how come uh, Terry Gross isn't talking to me?
0: Oh, uh, well, you're the brother in the prodigal son story. <laughs> exactly. I, <yeah>. I never.
1: <laughs> what? Well, this isn't fair. Yeah, I was good the whole time. Where's
0: my? Uh, uh, where's my celebration? Ain't that life? We're jealous creatures, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> Uh, But anyway, so yeah, we we need to talk about the Swamp Man, Robert. Yes. We've put the Swamp Man off for far too long. So the Swamp Man is a a variation on the ship of Theseus idea applied to the human mind. And this is originally a concept that was introduced by the philosopher Donald Davidson – In a presentation called Knowing One's Own Mind, uh, originally I think in the Proceedings and Addresses of the American Philosophical Association. The version I found was reprinted in the American Philosophical Association Centennial Series from 2013, but the original one was back in the 80s, 1987. And so Donald Davidson was raising this question What is the relationship between the identity of a thing and the history of that thing? Are you ready to go to the swamp, Robert? Let's go to the swamp. Okay. Davidson says, Suppose lightning strikes a dead tree in a swamp. I am standing nearby. My body is reduced to its elements. While entirely by coincidence and out of different molecules, the tree is turned into my physical replica. My replica, the Swamp Man, moves exactly as I did. According to its nature, it departs the swamp, encounters and seems to recognize my friends, and appears to return their greetings in English. It moves into my house and seems to write articles on radical interpretation. No one can tell the difference. But there is a difference. My replica can't recognize my friends. It can't recognize anything since it never cognized anything in the first place. It can't know my friends' names, though of course it seems to. It can't remember my house. It can't mean what I do by the word house, for example, since the sound house it makes was not learned in the context that would give it the right meaning or any meaning at all. Indeed, I don't see how my replica can be said to mean anything by the sounds it makes nor to have any thoughts. It's a nice creepy little tale.
1: Uh, summoning, uh, you know, memories of the, the the philosophical zombies that we've discussed, the pea zombies.
0: Well, yeah. So it, it the the question with the pea zombies is, it's assumed in the pea zombie thought experiment that uh, that they behave exactly like humans, except they're not conscious. I guess Davidson's asking the question of, can a thing that behaves exactly like a normal person but has no prior experiences? actually be having thoughts, actually be uh, uh, speaking meaningful sentences if it's just randomly producing phenomena identical to what a person would produce if they arrived at those behaviors by the normal means. And so to be clear, if we we follow through with this, if we really imagine what he's saying, a perfect atom-for-atom copy of you would be externally indistinguishable from you and would presumably behave exactly like the original you. There's nothing we know of that would make it behave differently. But it would not exist in a context in which its behavior would have any meaning. It might have a long, heartfelt conversation with a close friend of yours and it would behave exactly like you would and say the exact same things the original you would have said in that conversation. But it in fact would never have met this friend before. So, does the Swamp Creature have a relationship with your friend? Does the Swamp Creature know the friend? And for the same reason, does the Swamp Creature know anything? Now, I know we
1: have some comic book uh, fans out there who might think, hey, this sounds a little bit familiar, uh, because this is exactly the way that uh, Alec Holland becomes Swamp Thing in Alan Moore's uh, amazing run with the, the Swamp Thing comic. Uh-huh. Um I I actually went back and read this again. Uh, The the very first... uh, issue, I guess you'd say, uh, of this is, uh, is titled The Anatomy Lesson. It's from February 1984.
0: Yeah, I haven't read it. Actually, I, I feel bad because Christian once gave me a, a huge stack of comics to read that did include a run of Swamp Thing. I'm sure it was Moore's, but it, I never made it to that one, uh, though I did read All-Star Superman, which was great, and I think sort of lightly brushed against some of the same philosophical questions about the identity of a person through time travel and all that. But uh, I got to read Swamp Thing now.
1: Oh yeah, well it's it's uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Um it, it, it's probably been a decade since I read all of it, but I did pick up the Anatomy lesson and, and gave it another read and it is indeed wonderful. This is the one that originally hooked me when I when I read it for the first time and I wound up spending uh, way too much money at the time on all of the Alan Moore Swamp Thing books. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of them disappointed. But this first story uh, is just perfect. It's a, it's an intelligent little horror story that casts the, ver- the very identity of Swamp Thing in a new light. So he's not just Alec Holland, a man who is mutated into a plant man following a, a science lab explosion in the swamp. No, as Moore describes it, The wonder chemical here transforms the plants. And when Holland's burnt corpse sinks into the swamp, the plants eat it and regrow a body that believes itself to be Alec Holland. Whoa. So the organs don't work, the heart, lungs, brains. It's all just vegetable matter that has form but no function. But it believes it is Holland. And it is always believed that it is Holland. And this is the only thing that is kept... The Swamp Thing sane this whole time.
0: Well, so this Davidson presentation, I believe, is from the, the first time he presented it was in 1987, which is after this. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have to be that Davidson was inspired by Swamp Thing and not the other way around. Yeah, I think
1: it might be the case. I did just a little bit of research on this and uh, I, I could not find any definitive statements on uh, inspiration here. But, uh but uh, it seems like it,
0: that would be the case, and I think that's great. I suppose we can only wait until the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen show up in the philosophy journals now.
1: Well, I would actually love to see um, a Swamp Thing and Swamp Man meet up. I th- that sounds like exactly the kind of thing that Alan Moore could uh, return to write at some point.
0: Mm, yeah. In fact,
1: I'm, I'm a little uh, surprised it didn't happen.
0: Except Swamp Man would be completely indistinguishable from Donald Davidson, right? Mm, so yes. it would basically just be Donald Davidson meets Swamp Thing, except it's not the original Donald Davidson. Yes, I mean, it's a weird thing to consider. I I spent a while trying to – this is one of those weird kind of thought experiments that pokes you and you have to sit there for a while thinking like, wait a minute, is this this truly illuminating or not? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I was like trying to decide and I still don't think I've made up my mind, but it is strange. What does it mean to have a thought? because we typically believe that a thought is about something. So say, for example, you have the thought, I do not like the smell of hard-boiled eggs. We consider it part of the definition of this thought that you're aware of the existence of hard-boiled eggs, and you have smelled them, or at least you think you have, and you do not like the smell. But if a being with an atom-for-atom replica of your brain has that thought, and yet it has never smelled this smell... Is it really having that thought? What is it doing with its brain? You know, it it could not be forming that thought from information derived from sense experience. That thought, when coming from a being that's never seen any evidence of the existence of hard-boiled eggs, has never smelled them, has never learned the words hard-boiled eggs or the word smell, the thought is just random behavior, no more significant than, you know, a million pages of random numbers printed out on paper.
1: Now, at the same time, though, I can't help but think that Hey, I could develop a false memory of say eating a hard-boiled ostrich egg, mm-hmm. which I, I don't believe I have ever eaten, but if I but I can easily imagine where I might tweak my memory into uh, into thinking that I have, uh likewise, what if I read a very convincing passage in a novel in which a character eats a hard-boiled dragon egg? Mm-hmm. I have no actual sense experience of that happening, but if it was well written and had lots of detail and atmosphere, then I could I could very well in a sense, experience it in my mind. Uh, I think it's fairly obvious that... that we humans spend a great deal of time obsessing over memories that are at least flawed, uh, even if we're lucky enough to be free of memories that are
0: false entirely. You're exactly right. I mean, we we have false memories all the time, but they arise within a context of semantics, right? I mean, they arise in a world where you know that you exist and where words have meanings and you've learned the meanings of words like egg and like smell and you know that there is such a thing as smells. And I mean, there's an entire structure that makes that that false memory possible and makes it feel meaningful. So, for
1: instance, I, I've had a hard-boiled egg. I've seen an ostrich. I've seen a picture of an ostrich egg. Yeah. I, I can... Therefore, extrapolate what it would be to eat one, it, and then have the the fuel to uh, to build that false memory.
0: N- yeah. Now, imagine you have a brain that generates that memory, except it's never seen anything, and it's never learned any words, and it's mm-hmm. never had any of this experience. It just happens to have the atomic structure of a brain that has had all those experiences, and thus it behaves the same way. It's like if I had to form a false memory of uh, smorging a Clues
1: Pats. Yeah. like, What I don't I don't know. Where I would begin to
0: to assemble that memory. Exactly. So yeah, th- that's what's at stake. So I I've I've struggled with this thought experiment because I don't know if it's if it's making me feel weird because it gets at something really fundamental, or because it's one of those confusion machines that just like takes our intuitions and churns up a bunch of confusion about stuff that doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I keep coming back to the idea that if Swamp Man or even Swamp Thing. Remember, like if, he, if if he has these memories of being this person, then yeah, those 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 memories arise from uh, those memories have have internal context. Mm-hmm. They are kind of like a software that uh, that, uh, that 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 he's carrying around with him. Yeah. And even if he – you know, even if it's just a copy of the original software, it's still the software.
0: Well, it's kind of like if you imagined a software – a piece of software created by randomly generating characters to create lines of code that would execute eventually. And so at some point, you could randomly create a piece of software that does things. Could you call that software – could you say that it has a purpose? could you say that it has functions could you say that it uh, that it executes I mean obviously we don't think software is conscious I guess the question of whether the uh, swamp man would be conscious is a different kind of thing well
1: if, if swamp man goes home and and then and says hi to uh, to these friends I feel like he's
0: he's as human as anybody else really I think that would be Daniel Dennett's take so Dennett has addressed the challenges and usefulness of this thought experiment about Swamp Man, despite how popular it's been. Davidson first offered it, I think, in 87, and uh, though a lot of people have picked up on it since then, Davidson apparently told Dennett at some point that he regretted introducing it (laughs) because he believed it caused a lot of unenlightening back and forth without proving much. Uh, So Dennett's got a critique of this thought experiment. He says – You know, a lot of thought experiments basically try to function like science experiments. So you concoct a bizarre, implausible scenario with the purpose of isolating a variable. You want to put something, some particular variable, you want to be able to turn one knob up to 11 and control everything else and, you know, run everything else down to zero so that you can test your intuitions about what happens with changes in that variable alone. And so the the variable isolated in this thought experiment is the history of an object such as a person, right? You say materially identical, only thing that's different is how the atoms got that way. And Dennett, you know, he admits that a lot of times thought experiments like this are really useful. Like think about how physicists like Einstein and Galileo and Newton have used thought experiments. Uh, They they use – intuitions and math to determine fundamental facts about the laws of nature before anybody had actually confirmed them with physical experiments so thought experiments based on bizarre scenarios and intuitions can be very powerful but other times thought experiments testing bizarre scenarios are, are just creating unnecessary confusion and in his discussion of swamp man dennett asks us to consider the cow shark robert have you ever seen a cow shark i have not well, here, here's how you'd know if you have. The cow shark is created when a normal cow gives birth to an animal that is, atom for atom, exactly like a shark that you would find swimming in the ocean. Now, is this newborn animal a cow or a shark?
1: Uh, I'm going to say it's a shark. If it looks like a shark, if it swims like a shark, it's a shark even if it came out of a cow.
0: Oh, well, so you're got you you're challenging some definitions, right? Because some people would say, well, wait, sharks are born to shark parents. Even if a shark looks kind of weird, it's still a shark, right? If its parents were sharks? Well, that kind of logic will get you eaten by a shark, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then Dennett adds another wrinkle. He says, OK, well, let's say this shark is Adam for Adam a shark, but with the exception that it has cow DNA in all of its cells. Now, is it a cow or a shark? It's a very peculiar shark, I would say. Now, Dennett asks this question with, with the idea that if you ask this to a biologist, they would probably not think this was a very meaningful question, right? Because in reality, a cow will never give birth to an animal in the perfect form of a shark that has cow DNA in all of its cells. It's not Logically impossible Meaning it doesn't involve An inherent contradiction But it's just never Ever going to happen In nature And thus We don't learn a lot About biology By testing our intuitions About cows and sharks This way Because our intuitions About biology Have evolved to function In a world Where this never happens And never will happen In other words The very tools We're using to solve This puzzle Of is it a cow Is it a shark Are shaped by a world Where this question Will never arise Because it is Physically impossible Now, you could come back and you could say, wait a minute, haven't we solved real-world physics problems by creating physically impossible thought experiments, things like like a sleigh traveling at the speed of light for relativity or objects that fly through the air with zero friction? And the answer is yes, but Dennett says, you know, those experiments involved much less of an uncontrolled departure from reality than the cow shark or the swamp man. The physics experiments carefully name and limit their violations of reality so that you can take that violation and calibrate it as part of the experiment. And then real-world experiments can be devised to test the conclusions of the thought experiments after you're done. Not so for cow shark and swamp man, really. You know, Dennett says – there's sort of a general rule of thumb, and it's quote the utility of a thought experiment is inversely proportional to the size of its departures from reality. <laughs> so he does not really seem concerned with Davidson's worries about whether Swamp Man can actually have thoughts or know the meanings of words or even be a person because Swamp Man is physically impossible in the context that we've developed words and concepts like thought and meaning and person. A person has thoughts which are derived from evolution, development, and experience, and a swamp man does not exist within that context. So I'm curious what you think about Dennett's critique here. I, I think he makes a good point, but we, I'm, I'm going to have to come back on it.
1: Well, I do feel like there is this sense that some, some thought experiments are, of course, very useful. And then the further you you get, you kind of get into that territory of they're fun, they're great to think about. You know, it's like saying, oh, my hands can touch everything but themselves, man. You know, they're mm-hmm. it's... <laughs> It it's great, but I don't But my hand can touch itself. I'm poking my palm right now. Well, maybe. But I <laughs> uh this was one this was from that was from Futurama, I think, with the uh, uh one of the uh the aliens eats a hippie and becomes high. And he's like, <laughs> Oh, my hands can touch everything but themselves. Uh huh. Um so it's yeah, kind of a, a false a paradox, but uh, but you know, there's so many of these things that, they they I, I do I do kind of side with Bennett here. It does feel like some of the more extravagant thought experiments do get into that area where it's not particularly useful, but it's fun. It's more recreational,
0: right? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, I get what he's saying, and I think he's exactly right that we should be careful not to draw conclusions by testing our intuitions on conditions that those intuitions are totally unsuited to evaluate. Here's a great example. I bet you've heard people make arguments about the origin of the universe based on an intuitive understanding of things like space and time, right? Right. You know, people argue about, like, what it means for the universe to begin or to come into existence or something like that based on what they think it means for, like, a meeting at the office to begin. It's just like our concepts, our day-to-day concepts are not only unhelpful but directly confusing in that context. But I might take issue with Dennett's response uh, because I would say we live in a world where science and technology might be making versions of the Swamp Man experiment sort of replicable in reality. Maybe not making an atom-for-atom recreation of your entire body. That does seem fairly impossible. But. By making something like a perfect copy of the processing functions of your individual brain or, say, gradually replacing parts of your brain, ship of Theseus style, with abiotic computer hardware. And I want to be clear that I don't know this is possible. I'm pretty skeptical. I think, Robert, you're also somewhat skeptical of the Kurzweilian hype about digital immortality and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about that that some techno-utopians take for granted. But I also can't rule it out. So it may not be a sure thing that you can replace your brain with a digital copy or that you can replace parts of your brain one at a time with hardware. But it's not a swamp man and it's not a cow shark. It's a thing that I can't be sure we should rule out. So this is a question that it's entirely possible we could face in reality in the near technological future.
1: All right. So let's take another break. And when we come back,
0: we will discuss this uh, a bit more. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com all
1: right we're back so before we keep going though uh, Joe I do want to point out um your so what you do when I said the, the When I quoted uh, the alien in Futurama and said that uh, the hand can touch everything but itself, Uh uh, you demonstrated your hand touching itself, but actually your fingers were touching your palm. Ooh. Was your hand actually touching your hand? Maybe there is more weight to this this paradox than I uh, thought.
0: Well, maybe there are no such things as hands. Mm. Is
1: there a hand or is it just like a a team upon which – you have uh, fingers and palm pl- uh, playing. You know, that's another example that sometimes comes up for the ship of Theseus, a sports team. The mem- individual members change over time, mm-hmm. but we have this idea that the team itself is a thing that is consistent, even though sporting teams are are, are generally anything but. You know, they'll they'll be ups and downs. Uh, uh, you know, they may have a great year this year, but then who knows what next season will be like.
0: Yeah, stuff like this happens all the time. Let's say you, you – you... Like a company, you want to invest in a company, but that company has multiple rounds of like layoffs and new hires and all that so that none of the original people remain. And then say they change their branding and they get a new name for the company and all that, and they also end up changing their core business model so that they're doing something different than what they originally did, but you're still investing in the company. I don't know why I went to that. I'm not usually a big stocks guy. (laughs) So uh, the
1: ship of Theseus, as we've discussed it, it reveals a lot about the nature of change and this elusive quality of self. Uh, Any given mind state we express is ultimately just a a phase and a continual path. We tend to falsely identify both uh, past selves and future selves as being the same as who we are now. Uh, But the reality, of course, is is rather akin to these uh, disassembled and reconstructed ships that we're talking about. I'm a vessel composed of certain parts of my past, and many of these parts will constitute the ship of my future. And so when we ponder such possibilities as digital immortality or some form of digitalized consciousness, we can't help but summon the ship of Theseus. Which me am I attempting to safeguard, though? Uh, will it, and will it remain me? Will it change? Does it matter? And then there's the whole coin flip to uh, consider. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's the deal with the coin flip, Robert? Um, well, this is the idea, like, if I am digitizing myself or teleporting, is there any uh, – am I actually going to continue experiencing as this new thing? Or is it in there?
0: Well, that's a great question. I mean, we don't really know the answer to that. And I I feel like it's almost hilarious sometimes how – easily many techno-utopians and, and digital immortality enthusiasts just seem to assume that your consciousness can be transported onto some kind of hardware or machine. I think that, that's far from a given. We don't even know if it's possible for machines to be conscious. Maybe. I mean, it, it might be possible. But even if so, would that be you in there? Would it be like the teleporter? And OK, now you die and here's a digital copy of you that you don't get to share in the experience of. I mean, it
1: ultimately, is would it be the same as that stone stone statue of a long dead individual like mm-hmm. it's just the the technological evolution of that same idea like the, that statue is not long dead napoleon uh neither is this digitized napoleon that we're going to send to alpha centauri now i attended the uh the world science festival earlier this year and uh, one of the salons that i attended uh this a smaller uh panel discussion was uh, titled to be or not to be bionic and uh, one of the um, the participants on this panel was uh, a man by the name of uh, S. Matthew Lau, a uh, director of the Center for Bioethics and affiliated professor in the Department of Philosophy at New York University. And he brought up the, the whole, if you can upload it, is it you question, and pointed to the gradual replacement of neurons one by one as a potential approach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it makes sense, right? Don't just make an immortal robot version of me. No, gradually change me piece by piece into an immortal robot uh almost like almost like trick me into being an immortal robot you know don't just uh, don't just hoodwink me all at once like
0: uh like you know slip in there Th- that's an interesting question so yeah imagine if somebody just made a robot copy of you and then said well now this is you you would say no wait that's yeah, not me don't turn
1: me off that's because not that's, that's me. not me
0: but if they replaced you one part at a time it's possible that might give you a feeling of continuous experience That the rest – that the other process wouldn't. But I mean that depends on – you know, there are all these different models of what's the physical substrate of consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? Is consciousness – is there some part of the brain that it's based in? If you go back to Daniel Dennett who we were talking about a minute ago, he might say, well, actually, the idea that consciousness is a single thing is an illusion. You know, consciousness is a range of phenomena,
1: now, this uh, this gradual replacement of neurons to upload consciousness, this, of course, is just another thought experiment in and of itself. Uh, for instance, cognitive scientist and philosopher David J. Chalmers wrote about it back in the 90s, uh, though I'm, I'm unsure who first actually proposed the idea and if it occurred within the realm of philosophy, cognitive science or science fiction. So many of these wonderful ideas Uh, actually emerge within uh, the sci-fi realm before Mm -hmm. uh, they become, uh, you know, cognitive science, thought experiments, et cetera. Swamp Thing and Swamp Man potentially being an example of this.
0: I mean, this is one of the great things about science fiction is it gives us space to explore these concepts before they're actually technologically feasible. Yeah
1: uh and you know it is it, it kind of gets into that whole uh, daniel dennett situation too like sometimes it's it's just there to amuse you and like you know twist your mind ab- around but if it twists your mind enough you know sometimes you end up it becomes this uh, th- this pure thought experiment
0: um well yeah and along the same lines I, I think maybe what you're getting at is that sometimes science fictional explorations of concepts can become the opposite of enlightening they just become Confusing, They become a bad road to take. <laughs> or they just
1: become art. You know, I, th- yeah. I think of like some of the the Borges stories uh, where you have somebody that's dreaming within a dream, uh, the circular ruins and all these. There are elements to them that are similar to thought experiments. Mm-hmm. But I would never say that a, a Borges story is a, a thought experiment.
0: I guess you could. I mean that's I guess an it depends, interesting I question. I guess it depends yeah. on
1: the story. I'd have to like go back and think story by story. But, I'll, but Library, off- ba- I
0: Library of Babel is kind of a thought experiment. It is, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could almost say it's a philosophy paper. You could, yeah. All
1: right, may, maybe I take all that back. We'll <laughs> see. I, I need to reread to some Borges, perhaps. But, uh, but, but, you know what I'm saying? Like, it can become. I feel like some of these ideas. It's almost like there's a crossroads. Like, mm-hmm. like, right, where are you going to push it? Are you going to push it into this realm of, of, uh, of sort of uh, you know boiled down thought experimentation, mm-hmm. or is it art? Is it meant to to make you think and explore new ideas, but not in like necessarily a you know regimented fashion.
0: Is most sci-fi just like uh, speculative meta-ethics papers that are – it's formulated in a way that people want to read?
1: <laughs> well, it comes back to Time Cop. Time Cop is not a thought experiment.
0: <laughs> and yet at the
1: same time, uh, when I first saw it as a kid and, and time and time over the years, I'll stop and I'll think, well, that part when, when the two uh, villains <laughs> melt together, uh-huh. is that right? How would that work? Like I'm – it's – you know it's poorly constructed ultimately, but it it does make me think, uh, like a lot of bad movies do, I guess. But but back to the gradual uh, <laughs> replacement of neurons and uh, and uploading them and all, um, yeah, it, it comes back to the ship of Theseus idea. During this replacement, this gradual replacement, does it at some point cease to be me? And and what if there is this dark point in the transition, a, the, a moment of unconsciousness? Does that signal the end of your consciousness and the beginning of the next? Uh, is that which comes after not you? And if it's not, then again, coming back to what you said earlier about anesthesia, uh-huh. uh, how are we supposed to interpret that? Is the the individual before and after an- anesthesia, are those ultimately separate uh, uh, entities?
0: I mean, ultimately, there's this slippery kind of concept in here that I feel like is key that that, that is is causing a lot of the, the trouble. And it's the idea of – I don't know if there's already a name for it, but I'd call it something like – anticipatory continuity Mm -hmm. so it's like you think if you can create a conscious robot and you could put your brain in there you know at least the conscious robot could have the experience of being continuously you but what you don't want is the you that's about to transition thinking I'm going to disappear and die. Though, of course, the, you know, the you of every moment changes into the you of the future and that you of the future remembers being past you. And the the future, you know, the current you doesn't really worry about the fact that present you won't exist a few seconds in the future. But there's there's some kind of distinction people are making mentally there, right? They're saying like, if, it, wait, there's a way that I could die and some other thing could go on being me, which would be different than just me being me a few seconds from now. Well, I just
1: need the teleporter to edit that out <laughs> before it recreates the enemy. Edit out the, the, the fear of death in the teleporter, and then I guess we'll be okay.
0: But, I mean, is it death? I mean, I guess that's actually a question to ask. Like, if there's a version of you continuing, is there a way of saying that it's actually, that it's not any different from the you of three seconds from now continuing the existence of you right now.
1: Well, I mean, because if we're talking about just the physical body, we also have to remember that the body does replace itself largely with a new set of cells every seven to, seven years to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And some of the most important parts are uh, revamped even more rapidly.
0: But that's that's the more original ship of Theseus idea. That's right. gradual replacement. Yes,
1: and so we tend to be on board with that, right? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, re- <laughs> no, I refuse. <laughs> you Refuse. <laughs> I won't do it. There's some people who 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 believe that uh, the body is just. Well, it makes me think of uh, our old friend uh, Connor McLeod, the Highlander. Oh, okay. So, in order to live like five centuries, is it just more or less like our body? Like everything's just, uh, you know, cells are dying and being replaced, or are his cells just super strong? Are they the same cells? Is he mm-hmm. like uh, also uh, largely identical to the original Highlander except he had a haircut?
0: Well, I mean, this makes me think about our episode about neuroplasticity, about how neuroplasticity is is a balancing act, right? Mm-hmm. Like you want the brain to be able to change and adapt to a certain extent so it can adapt to new scenarios and learn and all that. But you also don't want the brain to be so radically open to change that it is, you know, it can just be ravaged by trauma and things like that you know you know what i mean yeah so there's weakness in being elastic but there's also strength in being elastic and i guess evolution tried to shape our our nervous systems to find that correct balance but inherent in that tension is the idea that some amount of stability over time is preferable that's like better for us as an organism you don't want to be radically open to change all the time uh then again may- maybe that that only matters over long time scales. And then is the I guess you could also wonder is the average person just going to be
1: open to the appropriate amount of change? Mm-hmm. Uh I, I think back to uh, uh this is a line from Terence McKenna, but he said uh, um if there's something that needs to be done, you will find yourself doing it. Um <laughs> which is is one of those statements that seems kind of kind of obvious. But at the same time, it's, I, I, I keep coming back to it and thinking, well, yeah, I guess I, I would. Like, and if you say, well, there's this thing I should have done and I didn't do it. Well, maybe you didn't need to do that thing. And that's why you have reached this point where uh, you're looking back on it like that. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to need to do something? Yeah. Wow. We've really gone all the way into the navel uh, <laughs> on this, uh, this episode. Um, lots of hands not touching themselves. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to uh, exit here. But uh, before we do, we're not going to have time to touch base, uh, you know, on every example of the ship of Theseus as it's been expressed in various works of art or, or fiction. Uh, but, but I do want to pinpoint a couple of them here real quick. For starters, uh, the book *Blindside* by Peter Watts uh, that we both read. Uh, I, I didn't realize until I started looking into this uh, or I didn't remember that the spaceship – uh, that they're on is the Theseus.
0: <laughs> That's kind of a little,
1: and it is little capable, joke, I guess. Yeah. And it is capable of rebuilding itself. Uh-huh. And then you also have a member of the crew uh, who has had half his brain rebuilt. Yeah. So there are a number of uh, of, of elements there
0: also just generally in the works of Peter Watts, characters are very much Ship of Theseus-style brains. I mean, yeah. they've had lots of neural augmentation and all that.
1: Now, the, the teleporter problem uh, variant that we uh, talked about, that's been explored on The Outer Limits uh, and to a large extent uh, the Christopher Nolan film The Prestige. Uh, there was a character on Star Trek Deep Space Nine uh, named Antos. It was a Bajoran spiritual leader who uh, had to have his brain gradually replaced with cybernetics and this eroded his previous sense of self and this had a negative impact on his relationship with Kira, the uh, Bajoran
0: character on that show. I or must th- admit, I've never watched Deep
1: Space Nine. What? Oh, it's pretty great. I, didn't, yeah. I, I have to say I do not specifically remember this episode, but mm-hmm. I used to watch it all the time. It was like every evening at uh, like 9 p.m. or something in syndication. Our
0: producer Alex has often schooled me on Deep Space Nine
1: knowledge. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get an email on this one for sure. Uh, there's an episode of Futurama uh, titled uh, "The Six Million Dollar Mon, in which uh, Hermes, uh, one of the characters, gradually replaces his entire body with robotic parts, while Zoidberg, the uh, you know crustacean alien doctor, yeah. he's been stitching the, the discarded parts together into little Hermes, a ventriloquist dummy.
0: Oh no! <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and so there, you know, you're left to wonder: Well, which one is the original? Which one is Hermes? Is it this, the robot or this grotesque uh, meat puppet? <laughs> And then the, one of the examples that I was most impressed with, mainly because I just I had no idea about the depth here on this, but the Tin Woodman from the Wizard of Oz books, the books by uh, L. Frank Baum. Oh, I've never read the books. Uh, I have not either. But when I started looking into this, yeah, there's this whole uh, narrative about the Tin Man, how the Tin Man has – uh, like his axe was, um, was cursed by the Wicked Witch. Mm-hmm. And then he like accidentally like chopped away uh, you know, part of his body. And then, uh, then it was replaced with tin. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up chopping away another part of his body and it's replaced with tin. And he just keeps losing pieces upon pieces of his body until he's all tin except for his heart. And then one day he cuts himself in half, I believe. And so now, now his heart has been bisected. And that's why he needs the, the heart. He has to reclaim like this, this, this portion of his humanity that has been lost in this gradual replacement, essentially a cybernetic
0: replacement of uh-huh. himself. Oh wow! I never thought of Frank Baum getting into cybernetics. Yeah, he's essentially a transhumanist, right? Are you one of the people who's a big fan of Return to Oz? I know people
1: who are into that. N- I've never seen it, but I remember seeing the trailer as a kid uh-huh. and being like a little freaked out by those the, the like people with wheels for hands. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I should see it. It sounds exactly like uh, the thing I'd be into. Though.
0: We should do a science of Return
1: <laughs> to Oz episode. Ooh. Well, let, let's not commit until we know what we're getting into. Okay. <laughs> Now, those are just a few fictional examples of the ship of Theseus. Uh, I'm sure all of you listening out there, you have examples you'd like to bring up as well. Um, So we would love to hear from you. Uh, In the meantime, be sure to check out Stuff to Blow Your Mind. That is where you will find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll find links out to your various social media accounts. You'll find a the link there at the top for our store where you'll get to check out some uh, some shirts, some merch, another wonderful way to support the show. And, uh, of course, if you want to support the show, uh, an easy, free way to do it is to just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do that.
0: Thank you so much, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to share your own thoughts about The Ship of Theseus and how that applies to the human mind, the human brain, and consciousness. To suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. at work.